Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Big Ten Hoops Weekly. I'm Brett, and I'm here with Steve, as always. Steve, how are you doing? I am over the madness. There was a lot of madness that happened this weekend, most of it not good for the Big Ten, and I'm over it. Um, so if you're also angry about all the madness, you've come to the right place. Yeah, I think I think we'll we'll get to that in a sec, but I don't know. I think I think I feel like after last year's somewhat lackluster tournament from a madness perspective with the the exception of of St. Peter's, I feel like I feel like I've been happy to see a lot more like down to the wire finishes this year just in the tournament overall. Um and I think that's that's more of what the madness is all about to me, especially when my team is not in it. So it's been a and it's been a detached madness for me, but I've I've been happy all the same. Um so I think it's 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 good to have March Madness back. I spent four days watching basketball. Uh, there's not really too much to complain uh, from an overall perspective. However, um, there's a lot to complain about from a Big Ten perspective, as Steve uh, just so briefly alluded to. And I I think we'll we'll get to the individual teams in a sec here. But and I and we were talking a little bit about this pre-show um, during our very very detailed hours-long planning session. But I think the overwhelming narrative coming out of the first weekend of the tournament for the Big Ten specifically is that basically everything that was nationally being said in a derisive manner about the Big Ten ended up rearing its head this past weekend. Um, And, you know, again, we'll break down the individual teams in a sec, but I think overall, like bird's eye view, like everything that kind of things critics said was wrong with each Big Ten team is something that came to pass. Is that, is that how you would view this, this past weekend, Steve? I mean, I don't know that I would go that far. I think again, keeping into perspective that six out of the eight teams in the conference were somewhere between seven and 10 seeds. I think that the likelihood of any of those teams making it to the second weekend was, was, was going to be pretty low. Um, And so, you know, I think, I mean, there's a variety. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at those six teams in particular, I mean, there are, I think there's a huge spectrum of just like where, where the fan base, you know, where the head, where the fan base's head spaces should be at, just given the season they had. For example, I think if you're a Maryland fan, your outlook going into next year is going to be very different than uh, an Illinois fan. But I, I think so. So I think from that perspective, I don't know that like any of those teams can necessarily feel like they underachieved. But I actually think, and 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 we'll probably jump right into this. But you know, the the disappointment really starts, I think, at the top, um, and just the, the conference continues to a get a lot of teams in the tournament. But this is not the first year when there's only one or two left standing as we get into the second weekend. Um, and, and, and that really hasn't been the case when you look at like the last decade as a whole, right? Like I think this conference, you know, early 2010s, mid 2010s had a lot more teams at the top that were, you know, regularly in the mix final fours. And that just isn't the case now. And I think that's the bigger kind of knock on the conference as, as we move forward here. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it. I think, yeah. And I think as we've kind of mentioned Going into the season, teams obviously had very different sets of expectations uh, compared to where they ended up. You know, we we didn't think Purdue was going to be anywhere near a one seed. Uh, and then obviously they started winning a lot and then expectations changed. And, 
you know, I think I think if we end up doing a kind of wrap up season review podcast, we'll kind of get into that more um, in terms of like overall context context of the season. But I think, you know, we might as well start with the games, I think. So we we don't we don't go too long winded here. Um, so unfortunately for our, our a couple of very loyal listeners, we do have to start with uh, the Purdue Boilermakers um, becoming the second team to lose to a number 16 seed in the Fairleigh Dickinson Knights. I mean, we said it. We said it the entire time. It was you have to if you press Purdue, they will make mistakes. You can let Zach Eady score a lot of points and have a very efficient game. But if their role players don't step up, um, you know, if if Smith and Lawyer kind of get in their heads and turned over just due to inexperience, it's the it's their first tournament game that it happens. But what really can't happen is Braden Smith having seven turnovers and going two for ten from the floor. Um, you know, Edie again, seven for 11 from the field, seven for 10 from the line, 21 points, uh, 15 rebounds, not much more he can do than that, especially when fairly Dickinson made his life and the guards lives really hellish getting, getting the ball into him down the stretch in the second half as a result of just, just fronting him with a very undersized lineup and Smith and lawyer couldn't get Edie the ball. Um, and they got nothing really else from anyone lawyer had 13 points but took 10 shots um everyone is pretty inefficient they turn the ball over 16 times for 25 percent of their overall possessions and i don't i don't care who you're playing i don't care if you're playing the fifth graders i used to coach like that's not going to win you a game i think the the thing that got lost in all this is fairly dickinson didn't play that great of a game when you zoom out you know right they they shot under 40 percent from the field you know 30 percent from three um and and you know they uh yeah you know they 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 only had three guys in double figures like they 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 didn't have anyone like go off per se other than their quote-unquote big guy that you know was like a 27 percent three-point shooter and knocked down a a couple threes in crunch time i mean this this was all purdue coughing it away I think, you know, we, we haven't talked about it this much this year, but we talked about it a lot last year with this Purdue team. They play three quarters of good basketball. And then, you know, what what often happens is they they fall apart down the stretch. And more often than not, they find a way to win those games because they're better coached than their opponents, which is a credit, you know, to, to Matt Painter and just his experience and his ability to get them to win these close games. But I mean, they, they they sort of proved that they weren't able to meet the moment when their tournament lives were on the brink. And unfortunately, reputationally, it's become a thing with this Boilermakers program. I mean, Painter has had a huge amount of success. He's probably going to go down as their most winningest coach you know, ever in the history of, of that program. And he, he can't get them to... Maybe it's not—it's not that he can't get them to win when it matters, but he can't get them to overachieve and more often underachieves in March when it comes down to it. And so, um, you know, whether Purdue likes it or not, you know, th- this um, mark is going to be with their reputation, you know, for for the next decade unless they pull off like a Virginia and win a national championship in the next couple of years and. I mean, I don't really know where you go from here. I know they overachieved this year, but um, th- this isn't something that you just kind of run it back and recover from. 
Um, especially, you know, I, I don't know that Edie's going anywhere next year, but, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I think like Lawyer and, and Smith, hopefully they get better, but like, I, I think they showed that their ceiling's a little bit capped once they get into the tournament and play more athletic teams. I think I, I'm going to disagree with you. I think, I think you can bring this, this entire team back next year, minus David Jenkins and, and still be a very, very high performing team. I think, you only learn as you know as young as a young player you have to learn by being in the tournament like it's it's so much different than conference play like any little mistake can really be the difference between you know having this happen and you know the making a run in the tournament so i think with experience will come just better nerves and hopefully being able to break a press uh for for the boilermakers especially their guards um, I mean, Brett, we're, I, we're talking about a 16 seed. There's no, I know, I know. That was ranked like 300. Like this is this is like, I mean, this isn't no, but, like about a little nerves. This is about no. Th- this team had something wrong culturally where they just they couldn't meet the moment. I I think I don't think this is just something you run it back from. I disagree. We said the same thing about Virginia, and then they came back and won won the whole damn thing the next year with the same team. I think that, yeah, I think expectations got shifted and I, you sh- they shouldn't have lost this game. Like, I I don't think that's not they played terribly and let a bad team beat them. That's 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 the you know, that's the end of the deal. That, at the end of the day, that's what happened. But I, I, I mean, I think we said all year that they needed to get more production from guys that weren't Edie, Lawyer and Smith. That's that was our thing the whole year. And they didn't. And they that's a, that's a need they need to address. I think getting wing help. Just even someone that can be a consistent shooter will help. But, I mean, Edie's still going to be very dominant if he comes back. I think Lawyer and Smith are good and will get better with experience. I, I mean, they still have to learn how to break a press. But I I don't necessarily know that it's a huge cultural issue in the same way that you do. I think they just had a really bad game at a very inopportune time. I completely disagree. I think when you lose to double digit seeds three years in a row with – different rosters each year um like look i'm not putting this all on that painter but um i i think it's i mean i would go so far even to question whether you're recruiting the right type of guys into your program um you know if if in the biggest moment of their lives playing a sport that they've trained their whole life for that they completely wilt under you know the the pressure of the moment and i i really think at the end of the day this is all that it was about because this was not a talented team. They didn't have like a schematic advantage. Um, yeah. You know, like we, we talked about Purdue's had issues with uh, not necessarily closing out games, but just, you know, th- their actual execution. We talked about kind of wilts a little bit in the second half of games, even though they find ways to win those games because they make their, their free throws and they play good defense and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, you, you, you're right, though, right? Like, I mean, you know, Virginia did come back and, and win it all the next year, and um, they proved us all wrong. I would argue, though, that in that case, you know, they lost to a team that had a career, you know, that, that they, they had, that they all had the games of their lives, and Fairley Dickinson did not play the game of its life. Um, Purdue literally gave them that that game away. Um, and I, I think any criticism of, you know, preparation or just mental fortitude is is fair, given um, how we saw them wilt down the stretch there. I think it's, I think that's fair. I think there's a big difference between that and a culture problem. I mean, we, it, not to get too in the weeds here, but like 
Virginia hasn't won a tournament game since, and they've lost to two double-digit seeds and and made the NIT last year. Like, do they have a culture problem? You know, I, I, I mean, uh, or I mean, but whether it's a, I mean, it's more of a basketball problem there, right? Like, you know, they pay, they play a slow pace. You know, they they play a specific style. Um, I mean, you know, they have to play that style to win. But the, based on the way they play, they're more prone to getting exposed by like outlierish performances. You know, like if a, if a team shoots 70% from three or whatever against them, you know, you can't like, they, they struggle to come back. They don't have offensive playmakers. Like there you can speak to basketball specific reasons for why something like that would happen. Purdue had the national player of the year um, on their team and Fairleigh Dickinson did not have an outlier's performance. And this is the third year in a row where they've lost to a double digit seed um, in, in the tournament. Uh, and, and, you know, they, um, it, it's not like Painter comes with a track record of long runs in, in March. Now, yeah, I think, you know, does Virginia have some problems, you know, right now? Uh, I, I think they do, but uh, they get the benefit of the doubt in my mind because they came back and won a national championship. And, and until Purdue does that, I, I don't think you give them the benefit of the doubt. Fair enough. I, I think, you know, I, I think that this will be the last thing before we, we move on. But I think it, this has been an interesting discussion, to say the least, and an entertaining one. But this team wasn't expected to be this good. And so I think that's where it like, it's okay. It's not, obviously it's not okay to lose to a 16 seed, especially as you've correctly pointed out, like one that had a bad game and was so thoroughly undersized. But, you know, I, I think, I think they proved their worth to some degree by like having this strong regular season, winning the big 10, winning the tournament. And I think that like, I don't know, I I'm hesitant to say the sky is falling is, is I guess, my point. I think if this happens again next year with the same roster, then yeah, we can say this guy's falling. But I think at least for this year, it's been an odd way to kind of come to a one seed losing to a 16 seed, to say the least. All right. So moving moving on to uh, a couple teams that that won their first game. Um, so Indiana and Penn State were able to uh, in the first round uh, continue their their run of 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 good play. Um, Indiana, you know, was, was a team that I had kind of penciled in as, as a, a strong contender for a first round upset to Kent state. Uh, but really were able to handle, uh, everything that the golden flashes threw at them. Um, I think that, you know, they, they really, they really came out, um, ready to go. And it, it took a little bit to kind of put Kent state away. Um, but they were able to do that on the back of another very strong performance, uh, by Trace Jackson Davis, um, and what is a theme? I mean, he was 10 for 17, 24 points, 11 rebounds, five assists, really, really turning into a do-it-all guy um, down the stretch for them. Uh, and they got a really good effort from Race Thompson also with 20, and that was kind of enough. Um, they were really able to hound uh, Sincere Carey uh, into a 5 for 16 shooting night, and and that was kind of the end of it for that, for the Golden Flashes. And Penn State, really stuck to what they were doing. I mean, they, they scored a huge knockout of um, Texas A&M in the first round winning by 17. If my math is correct, getting eight threes from Andrew Funk. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we had both circled Penn state as, as a, you know, a likely candidate to, to score the upset. So, I mean, and I think, you know, we'll get into the Michael Shrewsbury rumors later, but I think to, to really do that and, and hold, uh, you know, a, a dangerous Texan, Texas A&M team to to a, an off shooting night was a really good spot for the Nittany Lions in round one. Yeah, I think with with Penn State, kind of the opposite of Purdue, right? Like 
you know, they have essentially been playing elimination games for the last three to four weeks when it came to their tournament lives. And they they stood up and excelled under that pressure. Um, I think it speaks to Micah Shrewsbury and just tactically um, his ability to, you know, with without really that much offensive firepower, really, you know, create an offense that maximizes the skill set of, of his players. You know, he gets the matchups for Pickett to go at it in the post and, you know, do his thing one-on-one. Um, he sets up guys like Lundy and Funk to get open threes. Um, and, you know, they, they turned into a really tough perimeter defensive team too. I think the, the most surprising thing about this game just going into it, you know, I think there were a lot of, there's a lot of chatter about, out there about Texas A&M being underseeded just given their conference record and what was a really, really tough SEC. Um, and even like they, you know, they, they had a guy like former Big Ten player Julius Marble down down there in the post, someone who you thought was going to exploit Penn State's lack of size. And um, I mean, Penn State ran circles around this team. This game was not close at all. Um, and, you know, I know Penn State's had uh, have a longish like tourney drought and really had, 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 had no success in the tournament over the last two decades. And I think, this was really good for the program in a year when they uh, weren't really expected to be a player in the Big Ten, you know, to make it to the round of 32, um, to do it in dominant fashion. I, I think the future is bright under Mr. Shrewsbury if he chooses to stay. Yeah, yeah, and we'll 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 address the the coaching con- coaching carousel on a different episode. Um, but yeah, so that was it was good for for the Big Ten getting a couple early victories there. Um, now on to teams that played. Very different SEC opponents, but unfortunately suffered the same result. Uh, Iowa and Illinois um, were both knocked out by uh, Auburn and Arkansas, respectively. Um, We've said it all season that the Iowa defense really turns into a get-right game for pretty much any offense they play, regardless of how well Iowa is shooting offensively, and that did not let up. I mean, Iowa is still 168th in defensive efficiency on the season. Uh, they let Auburn, who uh, I guess is a pretty efficient offense, but not one that is you really think of as that's how they win games, uh, rack up 1.17 points per possession uh, on in route to 83 points uh, in an eight-point victory. Um, and, you know, it, this game was, was pretty back and forth for – most of the first half and then kind of Iowa or Auburn started pulling away. They eventually took a 17 point lead before Iowa kind of came storming back. Um, but it was never really in doubt once they reached that with 10 minutes left. And, you know, it was, it was kind of the same thing uh, the entire time, you know, um, Iowa had, or Auburn had six guys in double figures. Um, Iowa couldn't hit enough shots. They only shot 26% from three. Um, Chris Murray took a lot of shots. He was five for 18. No one had a good shooting night um, except for, I, you know, uh, Rabrasha was five for nine and ended up with 14 points. But, I mean, same same old story for Iowa, right? Yeah, you know, in some ways, like, they, they gave up 52 points in the second half. Like, you're, you're not going to win games that way, I guess, unless, you know, they had a repeat of what happened when they played Michigan State. Um, yeah, I think a continuation of a lot of the same narratives that we've talked about this year. You know, they 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 struggle the second they get out of Iowa City. They um, really do not play good defense. Um, and 
similar to Purdue, right? Like they're really developing a reputation of just being unable to, um, unable to win in, in in March when it matters the most. So, you know, I think this this matchup was a little bit, you know, I think it was going to be a little bit tough for them just because they're not the most physical team and Auburn's wings in particular are very, very physical. I mean, they play kind of a chaotic brand of basketball uh, from even just like how they press and everything. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say that I'm super surprised at the result. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing if you're an Iowa team, if you're like an Iowa fan, when you look at their performance in this game is you just, you know, you didn't see the toughness from them. Um, and I, I think the other thing, too, you know, Chris Murray has kind of faded, you know, in, in the second half of this year, you know, hasn't been as dominant as he was to start the year. Um, so taking kind of a little bit different of a trajectory than than Keegan did. Um, I don't know what his draft prospect looks like, but I, I think uh, it, it, if there's any reason for optimism, if you're an Iowa fan, I think it would behoove him to come back for another year. And he, he really started to look like he was more of just a flow of the offense type guy rather than a take over the, the game type guy. I, I actually think that, um, you know, Tony Perkins was doing more of their playmaking down the stretch this year than, than Mr. Murray was. Um, but I, I think that really hurt them in this game. He, he did take a lot of shots and, and didn't shoot well, but uh, it, it, it wasn't so much that he took a lot of shots. He took a lot of threes, actually. And, you know, it was not really didn't really see like a put the team on my back type of performance that you would have hoped for from a guy like that. Although you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't rail on him and not hold Keegan accountable either. I mean, they did lose as a five seed last year. So, you know, in some ways it's it's same old, same old for Iowa as a whole. Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally right. Um, and then, you know, we had also expressed a lot of concern for Illinois' draw against Arkansas even before getting to the uh, potential for a, Kansas, a matchup with Kansas. Um, and I mean, yeah, Illinois did not have the counters. They've, they've been playing some some disjointed basketball, to say the least, of recent. Um, but, you know, went down at ha- went down at half by 10. Uh, and the, eventually we're down by 17 before making a, a, a mini run to kind of make it respectable after, before falling by 10. But I mean, Meyer t- didn't make a shot from the field. Uh, Danger, five points. TJ Shannon had a really good game uh, with with 20 on a pretty efficient day. But it's it's the same thing where this Illinois team shouldn't be shouldn't be taking 22 threes unless Matt Meyer is taking all 22 of them. And they just they don't have the point guard play and especially with with Epps being hurt um, to to really kind of run an offense against a really athletic team. And it just it just ended up looking kind of disjointed against a, an Arkansas team that is very, very talented, but has looked inconsistent at times. And I think, you know, I mean, it it was it was not, I think, the ending that Illinois fans wanted to see. But I think this this sort of way to bow out of the tournament became a little bit more easy to predict as Illinois played uh, some some pretty not great basketball down the stretch of the season. Yeah, I think this this game was more about Arkansas than Illinois, in my opinion. And, you know, just the, the program that Eric Musselman's putting together down there, particularly their ability to win in March, you know, which we're you know, now seeing with them for the second consecutive year getting to the, the second weekend. You know, I, I think this is more about them than it is about Illinois. Um, and, and I think, yeah, easy to predict the right word um, be, because, uh, 
you know, we, we, we know what the flaws are of this Illinois team shooting being one of them. Um, and, you know, we also, you know, there were, um, as with all the teams that lost in the big 10, you know, some shoddy late game execution and just perplexing coaching decisions as, as normal with this Illinois team. But I, I think, I mean, you know, again, I don't know that it's necessarily fair to put this label on, on Illinois, given they're only three years into the Underwood era, but I mean, it, these early exits are, you know, becoming a pattern, right? They, they lost um, first weekend of the tournament as a, as a one seed, um, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago, and they did not get out of the, the first round as a five, they did not get out of the first weekend as a five seed last year. So, you know, it's, it's three consecutive first weekend exits for the Illini. Um, and, um, you know, it almost seems like they're trending in the wrong direction as a program, um, especially just when you look at where they were with Io and Kofi. I think, um, you know, we, we had them tabbed in the top two in the conference this year going into it, just looking at their roster. And uh, Underwood had all year to figure it out, and, and he couldn't. Um, and, and, you know, I know they, you know there, there were some things going on behind the scenes that they had to deal with. But um, I, I think if you're an Illinois fan, I, I wouldn't be, like, raising any alarm bells or anything yet because they're, they, they have consistently made the tournament, which is great progress from them given where this program was like a half a decade ago. But um, this is not the direction you want to be trending, um, especially when you think about, you know, Underwood should now have have his guys in here. But I think there's there's three or four other programs in the Big Ten and kind of similar predicaments that uh, this isn't a problem that's necessarily unique to Illinois, which is kind of the theme of what we led with in this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think you're I think you're totally right. It's definitely definitely not a sky is falling scenario, um, but I'm interested to see if the coaching carousel does not make its way through Brad Underwood at some point this offseason based on a couple things I've been hearing. Um, so it'll be, but interesting, but yeah, I think like overall, like given the high expectations for Illinois this off season, I think, uh, even though, you know, Arkansas, given their talent was no one expected to be an eight seed, uh, was a difficult matchup and, and ultimately ended up with Illinois taking an early exit. Uh, the other team in the state, in the great state of Illinois, Northwestern, uh, scored its second ever tournament win, uh, over Boise state, uh, by really controlling the game. Uh, on a de- on a defensive level, they really, really flustered Boise State with their post traps. Boise State looked often extremely confused as to even how to make relatively easy kickout passes. So really, really, you know, credit to Chris Collins, not for doing anything particularly special this game, but for having a defensive identity and really making sure the entire team bought in. I mean, you, you've seen guys kind of jump in and out of the lineup all year, and but they, they're all bringing the defensive intensity. Um, and were, they were able to hit enough shots to win, which, you know, has obviously been uh, a, an interesting point of emphasis for Northwestern this year. But, you know, they scored 75 points, uh, one and a quarter points per possession, which is a really good mark for them. Boo Booey had another really, really efficient game with 22 points. Adige had 20 also. And, and you know, it was going to take something like that on top of their defensive effort to really uh, get that win. So it was, it was good to see them uh, really kind of establish themselves in the tournament after you know people like me idiots like me were saying that Boise State could knock them out yeah I mean I think this was this was a good matchup for them kind of heading into it just not having to play like a a athletic team from like a a power conference um and that's not to say anything against Boise State you know because they had a really really impressive year 
um, in what was a really, really impressive Mountain West Conference. But I, I think, um, you know, I agree with you. It, it was Northwestern's ability to control the game from start to finish um, with their pace of play and their defense. Um, and, you know, they they hung on being carried by their superstars, which, again, kind of emblematic of what has led them to their success all year. Both Bowie and Audish scored over 20 points. Their big guys showed up when it mattered most. And, they, again, just I think cannot overstate how impressive as a job Chris Collins did this year getting this team, um, you know, who, who really had no success over the last three or four years here to, to get them, you know, to be one of the top 32 teams in the, in the country this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I guess a couple quick hitters before we go into the second round, uh, just given timing. Uh, first game of the tournament, Maryland-West Virginia was, I mean, you, you say basketball is a game of runs, and you you truly got that underscored in, in the Maryland-West Virginia game. Uh, Maryland fell down by double digits early, uh, was able to rally, and, and then just, it was 9-0 run here, 7-0 run there. Uh, it was... It was really an interesting game, especially for to see kind of such a high paced game at, um, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning central time. Um, so they were able to sneak by West Virginia, uh, 67, 65 um, balanced scoring. So Hart, Reese, Scott and Young all in double figures with and carry with nine. So they were really able to uh, attack West Virginia and West Virginia and, and really kind of make sure that guys like Eric Stevenson had a terrible game. Uh, they did, you know, Kadrian Johnson did have 27, but he was the only kind of big damage doer for West Virginia, which came in boasting a top 20 offense. So that was good to see from from their standpoint. Um, you know, it was always going to be a tough matchup, but they were able to prevail, get Kevin Willard his first Terps tournament victory. And uh, then Michigan State was able to survive a last ditch effort from USC and um you know, advance, uh, they ended up winning by 10, um, in a game that, you know, featured, uh, a lot, a lot of offense. Um, but it was really, really a team effort from the Spartans to, to advance out of that first round. All right. So moving on to round two, there, uh, a few teams entered uh, five, five big 10 teams entered, which is a couple more than I thought would make it out of the first round, but sadly only one was able to make it through. And we'll start with them, uh, the seventh-seeded Michigan State Spartans uh, were able to upset the second-seeded Marquette Golden Eagles uh, behind 23 points from Tyson Walker, who, I mean, every time they needed something, he was there. Um, and, you know, they were able to uh, really force Marquette into a lot of untimely turnovers. Their point guard, Tyler Kolick, had six by himself. Uh, they forced turnovers on 24% of the Marquette's possessions. Uh, and were able to, although they didn't hit a three for a very long time and, and only made two, uh, they, they hit them when, when they counted and were able to close down the stretch with their free throws, uh, finishing 19 for 23 from the line. Um, I mean, I mean, this was, this was a vintage time Izzo game, was it not? Oh, I, I mean, yeah, it, for all the railing that we've done on, on big, big 10 coaches, yeah, on flawed big 10 coaches to this point in the podcast, I mean, you know, they, you know, kind of out here while um, everyone else is stumbling over their own feet. You know, you've got Izzo just doing what he's done for his whole career. Um, and, you know, and, and even though Michigan State of late, you know, they haven't um, had a lot of uh, shots as like the higher seed in the last in, in like the, the short term. 
you know, the, I mean, it, this had the, the making going into it, right? Shaka Smart and Marquette, even though they had a really, really impressive year, you know, he has not really had any success in the tournament since, you know, he made that run with VCU. That was like more than 10 years ago, I think, at this point. Um, you know, and this, you know, Marquette team, you know, uh, I, they're tough. They're physical, not really full of, of too much tournament experience. Um, and, you know, Tom Izzo had his guys more together, more physical. And even on a day when they shot, I believe it was 12%, 13% from three, you know, he, he kept them together. He kept the, the offensive glass fairly clean for the most part. And um, even despite some sloppy execution at times, Michigan State had 13 turnovers. They, they did what other teams in the Big Ten couldn't do, which, which was, was win and make winning plays when they needed to. Uh, behind a guy that's been doing it all year for them. So I think, again, I mean, credit to Tom Izzo for leading his team through, you know, turmoil this year. Um, it's weird to think that, like, an Izzo team kind of flew into March under the radar, but they they did. And, um, you know, we talk about this all the time. It's, it's about surviving and advancing. And, um, you know, it's not like they rocketed into the Sweet 16 under, you know, an incredible performance. They they literally did just enough to survive and get through, um, which is something that, you know, the entire rest of the conference couldn't do um, and is why he, you know, has the reputation that he has as a coach. Yeah, I think – and it, it helped that Marquette did not have an overwhelmingly large post player, so they were able to kind of run, you know, four-ish guard lineups um, – you know, or, you know, play Hauser as a, as a bigger guy uh, or, you know, get get away with Sissoko at at, at the center position. Um, but, yeah, they scored the Spartans scored 27 points in the last 10 minutes of the game after coming out and they started strong and they finished strong. And, you know, that's what you have to do in March. And that's that's what a lot of these other teams couldn't do. Um, so shout out Michigan State for being the only Big Ten team still alive in the big tournament. Shout out Wisconsin for still being alive in the NIT. Um Moving on. So Indiana, uh, you know, was able to. That was it was a weird, weird game from Indiana. But again, the things that we've been saying the entire season is they need someone besides Trace Jackson Davis to do something. Um, And that was very evident in a uh, big loss to Miami, a 16 point loss uh, that really escalated kind of down the stretch. So it was it was close for a bit but Miami did jump out to a to a big lead uh Indiana got it to five at halftime but I mean Isaiah Wong was was just on another level 27 points they got 19 from Jordan Miller 12 from Nigel Pack Jackson Davis had 23 on 10 shots and 9 for 11 from the line um but Hood Shafino was 8 for 22 Race Thompson was uh, five for 12 and overall Indiana shot eight for 25 from three, which again, this team should not be shooting that many threes, turn the ball over 12 times and just, they got nothing from most of their team when it really mattered. And that was the difference down the stretch in that game. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing that I'd note in this game is that Miami had 20 offensive rebounds. Indiana got out rebounded by 17. Um, and I think, you know, we, hadn't really had to talk about their Indiana's lack of size, you know, for most of the year, given that like Jackson Davis's offense usually makes up for that, but um, you know, it, not a good enough effort on the, um, in keeping the glass clean. And, you know, that's something that can't happen at this point in, in the year. Yeah. You know, I, I do still think though, um, 
you know, I think a lot of people, including myself, thought that Indiana had a little bit more in them when it came to just their upside in the postseason. I, I think they, you know, they had the draw that set them up to potentially go to the Elite Eight or even the Final Four. Um, so I think, you know, this may leave Indiana fans feeling a little bit disappointed. But I still think it's really good progress for this program, kind of having won a tournament game this year. You know, they can say they've, you know, that that they're making – um, kind of sequential improvements under Mike Woodson. Um, and I think just his um, steadiness as a coach and, um, you know, they, they had an up and down year, right? And he kind of kept them together throughout the, the, the most part. And even though it didn't necessarily manifest itself with them finishing that much better in the standings than any of these other teams in the middle of the conference or, you know, going that far in the tournament, I think, you're an Indiana fan. I think you should still be, be pretty happy with this year, having made the round of 32. Um, and I know you're, you know, um, like I, I, I know you know he's going to have to continue to recruit and everything to keep this program relevant. But I, I, I think two years into the Mike Woodson era, I, I think it's hard to find reasons to not be happy with where Indiana sits and you know where they're heading moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up an interesting point with the rebounding because also it's worth noting that no one in Miami's rotation is over six foot seven, really. Uh, they have one guy who's six nine that played 13 minutes. But yeah, 20 offensive rebounds for Miami, 19 defensive rebounds for Indiana uh, is not a way to spell success. Um, I, but I think, yeah, overall, and, and again, I think we'll, we'll get to this in another episode, but, um, you know, good year for Indiana, especially when their season was kind of on the precipice of, with a few straight losses back in early January. Um you know, it's going to be hard to replace Trace Jackson Davis and and to some degree Jalen Huchifino. But, um, you know, good good for Indiana for getting to the, the, the round of 32 in a in a year where continuity really, really mattered with these teams. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Uh, Maryland was really unable to uh, keep things competitive against a, an ex, a wildly talented Alabama team, which was kind of expected. I mean, this this Alabama team is really good. It's more of a more of a shout to them than uh, to take anything away from Maryland. It was always going to be really difficult for Maryland to uh, get get the the points they needed. Um, they only managed 51 points against Alabama, um, one for eight from three. They just didn't get looks from outside, and, and they were all contested inside. Um, but I think given the the transitory nature of this year with with a new coach coming in with not his guys, overall a a good good year uh at 22 and 13 for the terrapins i completely agree i think at where you look at this, where this program was last year especially firing coach mid-season and you know they they just um looked like they were headed to be irrelevant for a while i think credit to kevin lillard he got them out to a quick start this year um and and um you, you know their home record their home success was enough to get them you know with a i, I think what i'd say is a healthier tournament seed relative to just the the talent that they have on that roster. So I think uh, credit to Kevin Willard, despite him um, probably speaking out of turn about a lot of things related to the Big Ten that he shouldn't. Um, I think if you're a Maryland fan, um, hopefully, you know, good things on the horizon for this program. Yeah, absolutely. And then a uh, couple more quick hits before we move into the one preview we have. Uh, Northwestern fought very hard against UCLA, uh, was, you know, it looked like they'd be kind of, UCLA would be able to kind of cruise to victory. They were up by as many as 14, but Northwestern fought back. Uh, it was really close down the stretch, ended up losing by five. Uh, 
you know, a, a good effort from Adige and Bowie, who combined for 34 points. Matthew Nicholson was perfect from the field, had 17 points against a, an undersized uh, and hurt UCLA front line. Um, but Jaime Jaquez was and Tiger Campbell were enough to bring it home, uh, and UCLA ended up advancing. But I, I mean, especially down the stretch in that game, I was really impressed with Northwestern's ability to to keep it together and and really muck things up defensively, um, really kind of staying true to their defensive identity, even though points were uh, somewhat hard to come by um, for for the Wildcats, especially from three. Oh yeah, I mean, I think. You know, you, you can see, and I mean, I know we've made like a lot of comments about just like, oh, which coach has it together, which coach doesn't, which program's in a good shape, which which one doesn't. I mean, I, I think I, I don't want to necessarily go so far as to say that Northwestern you know, and Penn State, for that matter, too. I don't want to necessarily say that they're like, yeah, these coaches for sure have their programs in better places than, say, like a Underwood or a McCaffrey who have, you know, had more sustained success than than these coaches but you know in this year with this roster you could see that northwestern you know and penn state in particular despite in losses you know when they were up against more talented teams you know in close games and crunch time i know there's no moral victories at, at this time of the year but you can see you know how they were able to meet the moment with more grace class and just competitive spirit for lack of better words than the teams that didn't get out of the first round and i know you know a, a one round difference in performance for, you know, a seven or eight seed, you know, maybe isn't that big, but I, I think, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to what Chris Collins and Michael Shrewsbury had going at, at, at least this year. Now, I, I don't want to make the claim that like, I mean, Chris Collins did a, is in an incredible situation given how terrible, um, you know, Northwestern has been the last couple of years to end up with like a contract extension. And I mean, I don't even know, like, I mean, what their roster is going to look like next year. But I mean, this year, you know, in these games, uh, they had the team that was more ready to fight and you have to give them credit for that. Yeah, I think especially and I think it actually does make a difference winning winning one tournament game for for these two teams that have kind of been somewhat historic cellar dwellers in the big 10, I think, I think can st- shift the tides of, of a program. I mean, you know, we kind of, we didn't quite see it with Northwestern last time they made the tournament on the backs of a senior laden team, but you know, it's a different world in, in 2023 with when you consider the transfer portal and NIL. And I, and I think that showing that the, you have these coaches that can get buy-in from these guys on a, on a very unique game plan is in style of play is, is, attractive to someone especially that spent a couple of years playing uh in low, lower major college basketball so i think that this is definitely these are definitely stepping stones for for these two programs specifically and i'm interested to see where they go from here um and then yeah just quick shout out so penn state lost by five they actually did take the lead with four and a half minutes left but the, i mean this texas team is a national contender uh in a way that penn state is not so it's not to take anything away from penn state which Really, you know, didn't shoot that well from three, but executed very well defensively, kept Penn State or kept Texas to one for 13 from three. And, uh, you know, they played they, they had a hell of a season, played a hell of a game um, and just wasn't quite enough in the end. No moral victories, as you said, but uh, definitely nothing to be ashamed of in that regard. And we finally made it to the to the one game the Big Ten has left potentially on the season. Uh on Thursday night, the Michigan State Spartans will carry the banner for the conference uh, 
into uh, a game against Kansas State. Um, I am very intrigued by this matchup. Um, I think you really kind of see the opposite ends of the spectrum here. You see kind of a, a very full team effort from Michigan State where kind of any number of guys could have double figures. Um, and you're really kind of all of them need to be playing relatively well um, to to win. Um, and you've got on Kansas State, you've got their their 5'8 point guard, Marquise Noel, uh, who did it? Who really got it done down the stretch against Kentucky? And you've got Keontae Johnson, one of the best, one of the best stories I'm gonna say in in college basketball, coming back um, from a collapsing on the court uh, at Florida. Uh, so you know, we we hope he's all good um, to to really have a, a strong season for this Kansas State team. And you know, you've got Tom Izzo versus the first time head coach Jerome Tang. So you've got that. Um, both, both these teams are very well coached. Um, both of these teams play hard nosed defense, uh, both ranking in the, in the top 32 uh, defensive efficiency, both top 50 offenses. Um, what's it going to take for Michigan state to win this game? Uh, I mean, shooting, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, we, we saw, um, we, we we saw Michigan State, I think, you know, get hot towards the end of the regular season, um, albeit not against the stiffest of competition, but um, that kind of has propelled them to, to where they are now. And even though they, they didn't necessarily shoot that well against Marquette, um, yeah, I, I don't know that, um, you know, I, I think just having to face a guy like Keontae Johnson, I think is a little bit different of a, a beast than anything. I mean, not necessarily anything they've faced so far in this tournament, but I think, um, you know, yeah, I think we'll we'll see what their game plan is, you know, de- defensively for him. Um, you know, this Kansas State team, believe it or not, like yeah, I I personally don't don't know too much about them. It's a really great story, as as Brett mentioned, with kind of not very high expectations in a in a first year coach, um, and kind of a, a roster that's patched together that they. Um, you know, they were ranked in like the top 20 for, for most of the year um, once they got out of the gate quickly. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it comes down to Tyson Walker, AJ Haggard, um, and Michigan State's going to roll with, you know, how far those those guards take them. I, th- I think as he's been all year, you know, a, a Malik Hall is kind of a, a wild card in a game like this. I think it's, it's crucial that Michigan State, you know, we know that they kind of want to run, but I actually think a slower pace probably favors Michigan State in a in a game like this um and but but i honestly think it's going to come down to what their defense is like in the post um and you know how well the defensive game maddie sissoko plays can he keep himself out of foul trouble and uh rebound the ball and keep guys in front of him uh and i expect michigan state shooters to have a better performance than they did against marquette and i think they have a really really good shot to pull off another upset here just given kansas state's lack of experience this late in the tournament. Yeah, I think a couple things I'm looking at. Uh, Kansas State turns the ball over a lot. Uh, they're 285th in the country in uh, turnover percent, but Michigan State's not really primed to take advantage of that. They don't really. They don't. They force even fewer turnovers than Kansas State. You know, so they're they're even lower in the forcing turnovers ranking than than Kansas State is in the committing turnovers ranking. So it's just not part of their defensive DNA, which is fine uh, because they're they're able to contest shots effectively. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting. And, and Kansas state has a, a very strong three point defense, which is Michigan state's, uh, 
you know, strength there. So I think those are the two things I'm going to be looking at from a macro level of is Michigan State able to get open and hit their shots? And can they take advantage of some some loose ball handling by Michigan, by Kansas State to, you know, kind of create extra possessions and and, you know, kind of get get running. I'm interested to see if they throw a guard on Noel to really try and stifle that and let Walker kind of be the main creator on offense. Uh, but yes, I think, I think a lot of things are going to run through their guards and then it's just kind of a, a pick them of, of which role player decides to show up and have a big game. So with that, that's our exhaustive recap of the first two rounds of the tournament from a big 10 standpoint and a preview of the sweet 16. Uh, we hope we're here back. We're back here with you to preview a potential final four run for the Spartans. Some of us may be more than others. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of good games this weekend. I'm excited for them. I hope you are as well, Steve. And uh, again, if this is the end of the road, thank you for sticking with us the entire season. We will have a couple ep- extra episodes, uh, you know, after everything's settled, just to kind of recap the season and contextualize it. Um, but until then, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for staying with us.